This is a message for those that work in manufacturing across the UK and Ireland. Do your engineering maintenance stores keep you awake at night? Are your engineers spending excessive time sourcing and finding the spare parts they need? Eric's on-site teams take responsibility for your indirect supply chain, including both your MRO procurement and inventory control. And, as the name suggests, we do this while being based on your site. For more information, visit www.erics.co.uk forward slash em. In the small southwest town of Dawlish, commuters woke one morning to find an unprecedented disruption to their day. Not leaves on the line or some kind of signal failure. The seaside railway that took them to jobs in Exeter, Plymouth or London had been ripped apart. Great gouges of rock and concrete had been torn from the sea wall and dragged into the sea. And up on the station platform, parts of the steel tracks hung limply over the gaping hole where the platform once stood. It's one of the main arterial routes to the south of England, down, down to the Cornish Peninsula. And when you use that, there is no viable alternative, certainly by rail, there is no direct link through the, uh, to the southwest peninsula to central England and, and, and through to London. So it has a huge impact on the local economy and, and the national connectivity for, for the area. Roy Hickman is a senior rail consultant for Fugro. He has almost 50 years' experience working in the UK rail industry. Just like Dawlish, other communities on the southwest coast had lost their connection to the rest of England. It's fundamental. It's the only link further into South Devon, West Devon, Plymouth and Cornwall. And it's also a vital link for local travel in the area. We have many hundreds of students who go to Exeter College every single day into Exeter. We have hundreds of slightly younger school children who go to tour grammar school so it, you know it's a vital vital line for many people's livelihoods their education and of course their holidays and so the pressure on network rail to restore the line was immense matt barnes is the head of strategic service development for great western rail the line's closure was estimated to be costing the local economy more than 20 million pounds a day as soon as the storm was over Work began to get the Southwest's connection to the rest of the UK back up and running. Network Rail sent a team of 300 to work round-the-clock shifts to get the line back up and running. Their first priority was to stem the the loss of more of the the railway line, and they and they they used a bit of kit that they actually had already got for engineering works that were going on a little bit further up the line at Whitepool Tunnel. To, to, to spray concrete in there. One of their other great challenges was to divert the famous transatlantic cable. There is a cable that provides digi 
data connections between the US and uh, and the UK and and has done for generations and generations uh, along the railway corridor so restoring that cable was a was an early priority because you can imagine that that was pretty high value to to the economies of our our respective countries shipping containers were set up to provide protection to the damaged seawall then just days after the repair work began another strong storm came and caused further damage to the seawall The other thing that everyone forgets is the is the cliff failure at uh, on the just to the west of Parsons Tunnel on the Timmouth side of the seawall, where again they had thousands and thousands of tons of cliff fallen onto the railway line, kind of slurrified because of the red sand, sandstone there. So they had a huge amount to do. But just two months after the initial storm left the rail dangling and the platform destroyed, the train started running through Dawlish again. There were celebrations in Dawlish and in Paddington, where as the first train arrived, sticks of rock celebrating the orange army of engineers who rebuilt the railway were given out. The Prime Minister at the time, David Cameron, even went down to Dawlish to celebrate the line reopening. This is a really important day for Dawlish. It's a really important day for the South West, but it's also a really important day for the whole of our country. I know how cut off people felt here in the southwest after that terrible storm, and it was so important to get this work done. But there was still the issue of the seawall. With the potential for more storms like the one in February 2014, a new seawall was needed to protect the rail line and the rest of Dawlish. Welcome to the Engineering Matters podcast. I'm Johnny Dowling. And I'm Rian Owen. For this episode, we've partnered with Fugro to hear about the work that has been done to get Dawlish and the southwest of the UK's rail connection back up and running, and the innovative methods behind rebuilding the Dawlish seawall. After the 2014 storm that destroyed the seawall and its train line, first priority was getting the rail link back up and running. Once that was achieved, the seawall needed to be rebuilt one that would protect Dawlish and its train line from all future storms. But rebuilding a seawall in that location presented a few problems. Jack Brooks is the senior agent for contractors BAM on the Dawlish seawall project. One of our main challenges in, in working in this area was working adjacent to a live railway on the beachfront. The fact that the station was a listed building how close we were building to the existing seawall as well. So we had to look at all the temporary stability of the existing wall while we we're undertaking the delivery of the permanent works. So there's a lot of temporary works implemented to make sure that didn't collapse the existing wall. And we had a 2.3 metre high kind of um, bridge that we could only deliver materials under. So everything had to be designed to fit underneath that bridge or it had to come by sea. But getting 60 metre long piles to the front of the seawall through the bridge was looking like an impossibility. So originally we looked at different options that we could that we could implement for, to, for getting the piles onto the ground. So we looked at um, whether we could do like a, like put, put a causeway or something like that in there or, or we, could, we could put some heavy rock armour and we could build up a platform and, and put the piles in from that sort of level. We looked at smaller piles using smaller piling rigs but we couldn't get them designed to work. The other obvious problem is when high tide mixes with bad weather, the waves are coming right up to the seawall 
making working on the beach very difficult. So they decided that if they can't come by land, then they'll have to come by sea. It basically left us down the route of needing a jack-up barge on the beach. A jack-up barge is designed for marine and offshore construction. Each corner has tall legs that push down into the seabed and a large deck that can carry cranes and other large construction equipment. But a jack-up barge struggles in shallow waters. When it raises its legs to sail, it settles down into the water. If the water is not deep enough for its draft, the depth of the hull below the waterline, it can become stranded. Often, barges must wait on high tides. At Dawlish, even this would not be enough. A deep channel would need to be dredged to allow the barge to travel. Now, traditionally, when you use jack-up barges, um, you move them around at high tide. And because of the size and plant that we were using to install the piles, which was a 114-ton piling rig, it meant that we had to have a, a fairly sizable jack-up barge. Now, the jack-up barges we were looking at all had probably drafts, so the bit below the water had drafts of probably four or five metres plus, which meant that we would have had to excavate and remove large volumes of material right the way across the beach, all the way across the beach of Dawlish. Now, obviously, environmentally, it's not very good. I'm talking probably several millions of tonnes of material. So rather than using a conventional jack-up rig, they turned to something a bit more advanced. So on the previous Dawlish work where, where, where the wall gave way, they, they used a, you know, a conventional jack-up uh, with four legs. And, uh, and then sort of during that period, they, they succumbed to the conventional jack-up, if you like, in, in, in terms of being restricted by tide and time, weather, uh, the ability to position at any given time. So that's sort of where the wavewalker came into its own. Zach Smart is a technical manager at Fugro, and during the work at Dawlish, he was barge master of Wavewalker, which the company developed in collaboration with Dutch marine contractors Van Oord. As the name suggests, it does not raise and lower itself. Its hull does not sit below the waterline as it travels. Instead, on eight legs, it walks like a crab through the waves, with its hull raised continuously above any obstacles. So Wave, Wavewalker 1 is, she's 32 metres squared, um, and she has 40 metre legs that are 1.8 metres in diameter. She's capable of carrying 400 tonnes with a normal, normal payload. The wave walker is like a giant metal spider sitting in the water. It has eight legs that it can use to maneuver across the seabed. Once in a jacked condition, then she moves by, in, in simple terms, four legs are in the ground at any time. And then you would lift the other four legs and you can slide those anywhere between zero and four meters. So a complete stroke is four meters and you, you reposition four, put those back down onto the seabed, perform a, what we would call a preload sequence, which is where you drive the legs in to a uh, set pressure, which equates to a tonnage. So the aim is to overload each leg to make sure that it will penetrate the top soil through anything that is soft or, yeah, I guess soft is, is the best way to say it. So when it reaches hard ground, the leg would stop. Um, and then you'll see pressure 
tonnage increase. So when you've then transferred all of the weight to these four legs, you can then lift the other four and then reposition the barge, which means it can then walk either forward or backwards, left and right. Wavewalker has been used on a variety of different offshore projects before coming to Dawlish. So Wavewalker itself is done drilling and blasting. It's done uh, Hinkley Point, uh, where they're building Hinkley Point C. Uh, we we help build the jetty from the shore side, so we basically connected the cliff to the sea, if 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 you want to put it like that, where we where we walked all the way up, we drilled all the foundations all the way to the sea, then we went back, installed all the road beams, went back, installed all the walkways, so we removed all those trucks, all that equipment, all that downtime, we removed that for the client and built them access to the sea to then have all their aggregate delivered and and again remove all the trucks all the time all the people so you know in these in these environments where there's tide where there's weather where there's risk of downtime that's where the wave walker comes in and while the site at dawlish presented huge difficulties for almost all forms of conventional construction zach says it had the perfect conditions for the wave walker when we arrived at dawlish actually meant for one of the first times that we had almost ideal conditions it was a very sort of small layer of sand overlaying you know slightly weathered rock but it's good for jacking conditions which meant we were able to achieve 40 meters per hour uh in in walking speeds which roughly equates to resetting the barge and the legs sort of every every sort of five or so minutes so you it it ends up even though uh, from the shore, it does you know it doesn't look like it's moving very quickly. But when you're moving thousands of tons at that speed per hour, the the amount that goes into it, that you know the the sheer amount of levers and time taken, the processes involved to achieve it is you know it's it's, it's pretty amazing what it can do. The wave walker can move around the water and work from anything between 28 meters of water right down to working with no water around. But getting the Wavewalker into position, ready to help with construction, is not an easy process. You know, something that things people aren't really considering, you know, it didn't come with that equipment. You have to sit back, make a plan, build up a ramp, track it on, secure it, do all of these calculations, secure all of your deck equipment, get the necessary sort of permissions and, and surveys and everything done to enable you to have the kit there and then proceed with the tow and then to tow out all, all these things you know there's so much involved to get to the point of starting um, and then deliver on that so yeah so it's a it's a huge operation once it's in place and ready to work fitted out with the necessary equipment then the actual construction process is fairly normal but the wave walker did present one challenge to jack and his team at bam the legs of the Wavewalker sit on the outside of the hull and would block the rig from installing the piles if it was located in the centre of the deck. Normally, you do work through the middle of the Wavewalker, through the moon pool cover. That's essentially a hole in the middle of the deck, through which loads of piling tools can be lowered. But there is 21 metres at least between the moon pool and the moving legs of the Wavewalker. With work taking place on a busy seafront, the moon pool could not be used. 
Now, obviously, we couldn't cite the Wave Walker centrally because it's a it's a forty-two meter by forty-two meter platform. We couldn't cite that centrally over where we were putting the piles in, which led us onto the challenge of how do we get a hundred and fourteen-ton piling rig suspended over the side of the Wave Walker. So, what we did internally in, in within BAM is we we designed um, some quite large and bespoke cantilevers for the wave walker, which allowed us to suspend that 114 ton pilot rig over the side of the wave walker to allow us to do our drilling. Compared to a conventional jack-up barge, the wave walker could easily keep up with the piling work along the beach and didn't have to stop during low tide or bad weather. If you had a conventional jack-up, you might have been able to move in there when there was no sand you had more water, you go in, the weather changes, the sand comes back, well now you're stuck. You can't move off, you know, you've gone from having 1.5 metres of water to maybe 0 0.2, 0 0.4. So there was a huge possibility in the lead up and in the planning that yes, you could have a smaller conventional rig there, but once you position it, could you move it again? How, you know, how are you going to get your support vessel in there to reposition it? And so, because the huge variation of tide, weather, level of the beach, all those factors uh, and the time of year, you know, because given the winter on that coast, uh, the, you know, the weather is notoriously harsh. You, you see it time and time again, these sections of railways getting shut down as they're getting pummeled. The walker just kept going from start to finish. You know, we, we were able to operate 24 hours a day and nothing else would have done, nothing else could have done. When Wavewalker first arrived at Dawlish, the plan was in 90 days it would install 283 piles, around three piles a day. It worked so fast that at the end of the planned hire period, it was even able to take part on another phase of the project. Once we actually started with the Wavewalker, uh, we had a few issues with ground conditions to begin with, and we had to do what's called hard facing on the piles which is basically like welding like a, a harder facing block on the front of the path will allow it to cut the ground a bit better. So once we'd, once we'd sorted out the problems with the ground conditions and the and hard facing all the piles, we were actually achieving outputs of up to 10 piles a day um, in a 24 hour period. So what that, what that allowed us to do is um, there was another section of work, which was part of the phase 2B contract. And that allowed Network Rail to instruct us to procure an additional 42 piles and install an initial 42 piles within that 90 day hire period because we were achieving greater outputs with the Wave Walker than we originally intended. Now, the piles themselves are at roughly a meter spacing. So we were doing 10 meters of piles, up to 10 meters of piles in a 24 hour period. So we'd actually reset and move the legs of the Wave Walker three times potentially during that, that 24 hour period. Using Wavewalker for this project was expected to save around £7 million and around three months of construction time. But Jack thinks this is an underestimation. But that, would, that, that also doesn't include like things like risks for weather and things like that. Now, when we actually got awarded the contract and we started the works with the Wavewalker, historically, we were in the worst months of the year. So the, the Wavewalker actually mobilised to site in November and finished in January. Now, from a from a a risk in weather point of view and in, in terms of working on a program you don't really want to work in with a jack-up barge and a crane on the south coast of devon in the middle of winter <laughs> so um that that obviously doesn't the, the figures that i've quoted there obviously don't really include risk allowance for weather and things like that 
you know, it, it went, if we were to do it, if we were to have done it with the traditional methods, I can probably say we'd have had probably about a 40% strike rate and actually moving the vessel at high tide because of the period of year that we were in at, the, at, that, at that point. When the wave when the wave walker was there, we with that we could just jack, put all eight legs down and just jack it up out of the wind and out of the out of the tide. We arrived on site in November and we were finished toward the end of February. If you had have been relying on a conventional jack up, uh, you would have still been there until the summer. In no small part thanks to the round-the-clock efforts of the team on the Wavewalker, the rebuilding of the Dawlish Seawall was completed in May 2023. Wavewalker has already moved on from Dawlish and is working on other offshore projects. Her next project, she's just come off of Scroby Sands, which is a, uh, a wind farm in the UK, not far off of Great Yarmouth. Again, similar sort of thing, you know, there's some wind turbines up on a sandbank they can't access. Uh, anymore with with sort of conventional uh, construction vessels. So we sent the wave walker there, walked up the bank, uh, big crane on board, and did some gearbox generator replacements. So it's it could be any time, any place, really. The storm at Dawlish in 2014 showed that many communities across the southwest of England rely heavily on just one vulnerable train line. Since the storm, a Restoring the Railway Fund has been set up to help restore rural train lines that have been closed. Over £500 million has been pledged towards reopening stations and lines around the UK. And one line that has reopened in the years since the 2014 storm was specifically to ensure the southwest had better connectivity and alternative routes in case something happened to the line through Dawlish. Uh, the only other way round it many years ago was closed in the 60s by Oakhampton. Oakhampton ran passenger services from its opening in 1871 to 1972. It remained open for freight services and some heritage rail services. So the history of the line is, is it last had passenger trains on it in 1972. It was retained to support the provision of stone ballast from the railway owned quarry at uh, Meldon Quarry by British Rail. BR sold the line on privatisation and the quarry to aggregate industries, but like most freight-only lines, the line had been maintained well up to that point, relatively well, because heavy freight trains do going relatively fast on the line, um, needed a lot of maintenance. But after years of inaction, the line itself required some much-needed maintenance. But obviously, for the reasons of of lack of use and obviously limited budget, the line had very much decayed and there hadn't been significant track renewals uh, for many decades. So when the survey was done, it was fascinating because what it showed uh, alongside the visual looking at the line and there had been other bits of work previously that we that we looked at, um, obviously a lot of the track was very old. The survey showed uh, a lot of sections that were obviously, we could tell from from um, from drivers that it was rough riding, but, but actually when you looked at the survey data, you could see obviously twists, you could see sections wide to gauge, et cetera. And, and really it just provided evidence that the line needed a full rebuild to make it fit for purpose for passenger trains, which was ultimately what happened. But it was really, really, you know, it's a powerful piece of data to get from very little effort, you know, compared to traditional survey methods to give you a sort of snapshot of the condition of the line at the time. 
For network rail to get a better understanding of the condition of the old line, they used a technology developed by Fugro called Ryla, which is a train-mounted device which collects data on the condition of the track and everything surrounding the line. And what it did was, was running that uh, network between Exeter and Oakhampton with the, the Ryla RRV, it allowed us to capture the current asset condition and data from a, a, a track geometry perspective and a, and a visual perspective. The storm at Dawlish increased calls from locals and awareness from the government that rural rail access was of great importance. The Peninsula Rail Task Force, who had already been formed pre-Dawlish but were suddenly given renewed vigour who represent the local authorities across the southwest peninsula, so Somerset westwards, uh, down to Cornwall, gained clearly a great deal of uh, great deal of importance in representing the needs of of the of people in the southwest. And PRTF took on reopening the line through Oakhampton and indeed on to Plymouth on a phased basis as being one of its aims. But it was also relevant locally. The, the, a group was formed around that time called Oak Rail uh, to bring together the local community, town council, the councillors, councillors, members of the community to promote the reopening of the railway between Exeter and Oakhampton or the private section from Crediton to Oakhampton. And the Oak Rail group really got its act together and Oak Rail were able to seize the moment and build momentum subsequently from, from what happened at Dawlish. And um, we ran some special trains for them and things like that. So, so really Dawlish was the moment when Oakhampton went from a local aspiration into something which had national political interest. There was a Secretary of State visit at the time to go and see Oakhampton, interestingly, and everyone basically got their act together. So although it seems a long time later, reopening the line 2021 was actually quite closely connected to the events of uh, 2014 at Dawlish. The funding for work on Oakhampton Station was agreed at the start of 2021, and by November of the same year, it had reopened as part of a resurrected Dartmoor line, providing many in the southwest with additional local connections. But to get approval, they had to build a business and strategic case to prove the line's viability. We really focused very heavily on the strategic case and what it would do for people in this railway desert, people who we identified were basically suffering from kind of um, sort of effectively social isolation of, of being um, deprived of good transport links. So young people who just didn't have the same educational opportunities and things like that. And so the railway was, you know, the objectives are very much geared around the social role of the railway and opening those things up. So I guess the big question is, have we been proved right? Well, our passenger figures, it's a busy railway. It's doing really well. And, you know, we are we are happy with it and and believe it is certainly living up to the to, to what we thought it could. Providing more rail access to rural communities is not just an issue for the community surrounding Dawlish. Across the UK, there are abandoned and closed down rail lines and stations that could provide huge benefits to the surrounding communities if they were reopened. I'm a huge fan of reopening lines. I'm probably more associated than just about anyone else with the Dartmoor line reopening to Oakhampton. I've been involved in it longer than anyone else um, in the rail industry. And what we've seen at Oakhampton has genuinely changed people's lives. The, the ability to, to just travel that they couldn't do before. And, and it, you know, anyone who wants to believe it should just go and take the train out there and see see what it means to people. But could it could it make a difference, similar difference elsewhere? Well, just in the southwest, you know, we've got another scheme 
just a bit further west from Oakhampton, very closely connected, which is the other end of the, the former route via Oakhampton to Plymouth uh, at Tavistock, where there is a scheme that we are waiting and hoping there may be funding to continue development on that Devon County Council promoted over many years. Similarly, of course, there's the Portishead scheme in Bristol, reconnecting the railway there. That has been well understood for many years, could make a huge difference to people in North Somerset, helping with congestion into Bristol. Very different situations uh, to what you've got. That's much more about urban transport. But there are so many other schemes. There's the Northumberland line, which is now being constructed. That will that will transform the area uh, north of Newcastle out to uh, Blythe. Although I won't go into it anymore because my geography will be found lacking. But but you know that's that's a fantastic scheme with huge ambition, and you know I'm sure that will make a massive difference to to that that area um, of Northumberland. I know there are many many other schemes that are that are out there in the in the offing. There's the Waterside line outside Southampton, Forley, and there I think were many dozens. I forget the exist statistic of schemes submitted either new stations or line reopenings to the Restoring a Railway programme. And if a fraction of those come forwards, then that is going to be tens and tens of thousands of people that get reconnected to the railway and it therefore have opportunities which they simply didn't have before open up to them. But across the UK, there is a lot more work to be done in order to protect rail infrastructure. The storm that hit Dawlish in 2014 is just one example of how our coastal infrastructure is becoming more and more vulnerable. Rising sea levels, worsening storms and coastal erosion are all threats to the UK's rail network. One of the main drivers of, of the railways that we built uh, by the Victorians was to get people to the coast. People wanted to go to the seaside. So a lot of these railways were, were built to, to get people to the coast. And having got them there, they generally followed the coastline and then the Victorians built some significant uh, coastal defences down there. But over the years, you know, 100, 150 years later, these change in, in, in what is required. We've got climate change, we've got worsening weathers, we've got where we had one in 100 storms, we're now getting in, in one in 50. So the, the whole uh, structure needed to, to be to be re-evaluated to sort of future-proof it for the next 50 or 60 years. Coastal defences anywhere around the UK are, are constantly being addressed by, by Network Rail as the infrastructure owner and, and they're massive changes. You know, you go on the Cambrian coast, the Cumbrian coast, Scotland coast, anywhere down the east coast, the, the, you know, erosion is, is always a huge problem but it takes a major event like they had at Dawlish to actually sit back and say, well, we really have to do something different here and, and you know, put better coastal defences in place at that location. Building or upgrading sea defences are expensive projects and the cost of construction is only going up right now. But there is the potential for innovation in construction and design methods to make massive cost savings, just like the Wave Walker was able to do in Dawlish. The use of innovative materials, the use of modelling, we, we could use modelling uh, to, to tell us how things will perform. We can put 20, 30, 40, 50 years of, of cyclic 
segregation in, in, into assets in, in a laboratory or, or on a computer nowadays. So by using an innovative innovation in, in, in data and data manipulation, which is what we're trying to do when we're building these uh, build information models or BIM models, that, that type of technology uh, helps. But additionally, you know, in, in 40, 50 years, as we've got smarter with technology and computers and everything else, that has also given us the ability to build better construction machines, you know, bigger uh, earth movers, but bigger, more resilient uh, plant items, as, as the wave walker that was used on uh, Dawlish shows you, you know, we can make these machines that go into quite hostile environmental areas and can continue to work. But even if protecting and upgrading the UK's rail network is going to be expensive, the cost of rural communities losing their vital rail connections is too high. You know, make no mistake, even the Victorians, when they built railways, it cost a lot of money by their standards and a lot of their railway networks that they built and structures they built did overspend. Uh, they, they, they overspent on original money. I, I mean, the simple answer is, what alternative have you got? Do you build more roads? So road construction now isn't, isn't easy. It can't move the tonnages that rail can move. The UK it is so small that it doesn't make sense to try and to try and do it with air travel like you would in, let's say, for example, Australia or the United States. So rail is probably the only viable option. Again, you look to Europe. Uh, Europe is far more integrated with it, its rail uh, and road networks. Indeed, as is, is Ireland, it, it, it's integrated quite well. And of course, Europe was able to rebuild significantly after events of the 1940s. So a lot of that infrastructure was, was rebuilt and restructured to modern day communities, whereas the UK as we've already said, it is revolving around Victorian connectivity. Engineering Matters is a production of Rebe Media. This episode was written and produced by me, Johnny Dowling, and hosted by me and Rian Owen. Editing and series supervision by John Young. Sound engineering by Ross McPherson. And our own adaptable work platform is Rory Harris. Special thanks to our partner for this episode, Fugro. And thank you for listening. You can find us on all podcast apps, on our website, engineeringmatters.reby.media, and on LinkedIn.